Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy to assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Warning. This podcast may induce critical thinking, reflection, and doubt. Going gonzo like the best of them. Welcome to the People's Democratic Republic of Podcast. Greetings, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the People's Democratic Republic of Podcast. To continue our tradition of doing what we actually want to do here and sticking to our principles, we're all about controversial opinions and exposing yourself to the opinions of the other side. And um, and as last time we spoke to Daryl Cooper, this time I wanted to get some people with a bit different opinion than his and different opinions from each other here. And I was extremely lucky to get... Two of the most interesting people I know here, with people who see the same problems, but who have, I believe, quite different opinions on how to solve them here. So, please introduce yourselves. Uh, Glenn, let's start with you, then. Chris always has to act like we don't know each other whenever he has me on a different show. Like we're not also the lesser Bonapartes, Chris. Well, we are the lesser Bonapartes, but I'm supposed to hate- I, I, I am supposed to hate you right now. <laughs> When I do my when I do my journalism, I unleash my inner hate on everything. Oh, okay, okay. Well, uh, I'm I'm uh, I'm Glenn Gibbs, and I am one half of the Lesser Bonapartes, uh, a history podcast that I do with Chris. So, but he has vowed to hate me this evening. Don't think he's going to show any favoritism. Okay, and how would you describe your your political leanings? Uh, I think I've told you this before. I, I consider myself a Zen communist. Wow, excellent. What do- I'm not really. Do what? Do you mean like a political party, or like what do you mean exactly? No, no. Zen communist will do that. Okay, good. Uh, our second guest here is uh, Prof. CJ from the Dangerous History Podcast, which I, which is a podcast that I love very much. Sometimes disagree with on on certain points, but yeah. Yeah. Hey, CJ Kilmer, DangerousHistoryPodcast dot com. Yeah, I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me on. And did you want me to describe my political views too, or? Yeah, in a short two words, something. Uh, short two words. Um, probably the best would be market anarchist. Somewhat closer to libertarian, I presume. Yeah, it's it's definitely related. It's a particular it's a particular type, though. Um, I'm not a big fan of 
most of like the you know the libertarian party and cato institute and all all those sorts of people um i don't agree with them on a lot of things so yeah and as my listeners know i am a journalist that entails certain things but first things first so as far as i get it prof cj hates the state more than he hates the big corporations and glenn hates the big corporations more than he hates the state is is that correct, or am I missing something here? That's fair. I'll call that fair. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and and I would just add that I don't like the big corporations, but I see the state as being kind of the root of a lot of the things about them that I don't like. Okay. Well, uh, I have a question to you that I wanted to talk about, and I also really consider journalism and what we do here. As you know, I used to work in this small regional newspaper. And I recently watched John Oliver's Last Week Tonight. It's kind of an interesting show here. Political comedy, you know, you have to learn from someone. And he got an episode on journalism. And it was all about how people are not buying print newspapers anymore, but all these local newspapers and print are the ones who are basically the guys sitting in city halls and watching over all these kind of meetings that they have and all the decisions that they make. And the fact that people are not buying newspapers anymore leads, leads to all sorts of weird stuff being done by the owners of the newspapers to earn some money. So, and this also happened here in Ludzim. What happened is that instead of actually going to the city hall and writing anything meaningful, we all stuck uh, on articles on, I don't know, local farmers getting new cows, puppy shows, and all sorts of other nonsense instead of actually being in the city hall and making sure that the guys in the meetings don't do silly things, such as zoning laws, for example, which are very important over here in Latvia. Because, you know, you can't build your nice little mansion in right, right, in, right next to the beach, but you can if the zoning laws are changed. So I personally dislike everyone equally. I, I dislike that people are not thinking and that they care more about kittens than, you know, what the stuff that actually matters. I dislike that the newspaper owners uh, of, often put their own personal profit just so in front of everything that they just, they just ignore things that, you know, society should know. And I hate corrupt people who work in city halls or, you know, in higher up places and city halls are important because local newspapers are kind of the main source of information where often the bigger newspapers also get their get their stuff done so that kind of mixes in into this problem in the end if you if you look at this if everyone just turning to the internet and doing what's the most what's the most profitable and, and weird and cool thing then we can kind of lose the backbones of journalism which is which is a shame because it's going to be a great time to be uh, in a city hall and be a corrupt politician in the city hall money in politics all the way what do you think is kind of the solution of all of this money in politics issue then again cj i think you just don't believe states should solve all of this anyways i mean if we would have no states there would be no money in politics and corrupt politicians right yeah that would that would pretty much be the uh the the simple version of my solution uh, not that I, I would be in favor of there's there's always this question when someone says that they're anti-state of if there was a magical switch that you could flip, they would instantly delete the state from existence right away. Would you flip that switch? And some people say yes and some people say no. And my response to that is no, because I think the way that everything is currently the way society is 
the the habits and so on that are ingrained in people from being raised in the systems that we have are so not conducive to having the state go away tomorrow morning that probably the first thing people would do is try to erect a new state. So short answer, my solution is make the state go away. Long answer is I think it is completely impossible, extremely unlikely, and probably not a good idea to make that happen tomorrow. Okay, yeah, I, I kind of agree that definitely we don't live in a society where people could just operate without the state efficiently just yet. I think so, at the very least. Then again, I wanted to point out that but with the journalism issue is that there are some businesses which carry, in my eyes, some moral responsibility which a bit beyond that of pure profit such as local newspapers, which are all, all mostly privately owned. I don't think that uh, local newspapers are necessary. I think they're entirely irrelevant. If you want to talk about who the media is, the people are the media now. I mean, if you want to get into current events, these are things I don't really do on our show, but we all watched a man being shot by the police in the driver's seat of his car, and that was live-streamed to Facebook by his girlfriend. And could you imagine that happening? That couldn't have happened 10 years ago, let alone 30, 40, 50, so... And um, pe- we all have cameras on us now. We all have video cameras on us. We have tape recorders. We have a way of getting messages and information out to people. Somebody, a, a Pakistani um, man accidentally tweeted the helicopters that were flying to kill Osama bin Laden. We don't, there's no secrecy anymore. I think transparency is bigger than ever. I don't think that they're they're necessary at all. I used to videotape city council meetings in college. They really don't do a whole hell of a lot there. And anything that they are doing, they don't really care what you think. They are going to make the decisions they're going to make anyway. And like you're saying, it's all about who's giving them money. And particularly in zoning laws, I mean, what do they care? You know, about me going in and being like, I believe we should save the wetlands and not build Walmarts here. Who are they going to listen to? Me or Walmarts with a billion dollars? You know, they don't really care what we think. I don't really think there is no government or anything like that anymore. I think it's all irrelevant. I think corporations are in charge. So I don't really think you can get money out of politics because money is politics now more than ever. By the way, Glenn, I know I'm supposed to be here to argue with you, uh, but I but I just want to say I very much agree with what you said about, you know, the, the local press becoming irrelevant. I think you're you're dead on with that. So sorry for agreeing, but <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm just saying like, oh, now people. <laughs> No, no, it's completely fine. It's completely fine. Uh, but the thing is, I, I don't believe local press is becoming irrelevant because, you know, you really can't can't just compare uh, just Twittering and Facebooking something where, with a bit of digging in and understanding what all the decisions mean and, and digging through stuff. And sometimes it can have a difference if you post it in, in some sort of bigger things. But the, the local press was just a reason to get you started on, on this on this state. And uh, just just asking, is... is can there be any businesses which have some moral obligations besides just earning money and, and um, yeah, and have they sometimes caused more evil in the state? That's the question here. I'll let you take that one, CJ, first, because I'm kind of, I'm interested on your, your, your take on that. Okay, well, I mean, it, it depends on, on kind of what level you want to look at it. Um, do corporations currently do horrible things, especially some of the bigger ones that are the biggest corporate welfare queens and that sort of thing, and that are the most in bed with the state? Absolutely. Military-industrial complex-type corporations evil? Yes. Are 
the kind of police industrial complex corporations that make all the dough off the drug war and all those things evil? I think so. Um, do you know? Uh, it, do do I think that bailing out Wall Street and all this sort of thing and subsidizing corporations eight ways from Sunday and you know all these sorts of things? Uh, I'm not in favor of any of these things. And do those corporations who get those privileges and those those benefits and all those things frequently do horrible things? No question. On the other hand, though, if you just want to talk like body count, right? I mean, you know, look at the number of people killed by the U.S. government in the last, you know, 100 years. There's not a corporation that even comes close. Um, well, I think that they, the government, if, um, I, I think I feel like I'm going to be really repetitive here, but I think I think I look at it the other way um, is that the government is doing evil things on behalf of the corporations, uh, the corporate, I mean, think about GE makes nuclear weapons, read into, um, Dole, the people that have died so we can have cheap bananas. Um, think about your jeans where they're made. They're made in, uh, sweatshops in, in Pakistan and Bangladesh where there are no fire exits. And if there's a fire, everybody dies. Think about the corporations. Think about farmers. And I know we're not supposed to talk ill of the farmers in America because that's one of those things that, you know, you're supposed to put your hand over your heart and listen to, you know, Country Roads by John Denver whenever that gets mentioned. But think about like the farm subsidies in here that are destroying the planet and making it possible for irrelevant crops to grow like corn, which actually costs more money to plant than it's worth. And the the difference in that is made up for by tax dollars. So we have to keep these industries going, though, because why? Well, because they give all that money and kickback back to the government. They supply them with the cheap, crappy food you get in your school lunches and things like that as, you know, to throw away their garbage. Um, you know, who makes the Agent Orange? Uh, you know, corporations make these Dow Think about what they did in Bhopal. Dow did what they did to Bhopal. They released the same chemical agent in 1985 in my home state of West Virginia. And they just didn't talk about it here, though. Who knows? Did anybody die? Were there any uh, birth defects? We don't know. We, um, But it happened, and it was barely reported in the news at the time. But it was possible for them to have the kind of lax regulations that allowed it to happen. So... I mean, what do they do at the site where they released all of that toxic gas? Well, uh, they gave it to a college, a state college, and they built a college there. Tax-free, free, hush, hush. Don't worry about it. Here's a college land, you know, and things like that. I think and even like uh, the most recent wars, Afghanistan, Iraq, places like that, they went in to try to set up puppet governments to make it easier for American businesses to conduct business there for oil or just so we could have Kentucky Fried Chickens in Iraq. I think all of this stuff could be traced back to the whole like quo bono, who benefits type arguments. Interestingly enough about the corporations. My personal view is that any sufficiently large corporation gains state-like properties anyways. I mean, we, with Glenn, recently did an episode, did a lot of episodes on the British Raj, and, like, East India Trading Company is is essentially a quasi-state, but it's a corporation, technically, with shareholders and everything. And uh, farming subsidies is also an interesting question, especially here in the European Union, which basically is built to protect uh, farmers, local European farmers, from outside competition and free markets. 
We also spent a lot of money on farming subsidies, but yeah, God forbid you even mention that that's kind of shouldn't be that it shouldn't be done that way. That's one of my criticisms of the European Union at this point. Because I don't know, Prof. CJ, Prof. CJ can explain the, the benefits of uh, the free trade, global free trade, more better than I do. Well, even Kristaps, um, if I can even correct you there, in America, corporations are in states; they're technically people. Uh, the Citizens United ruling um, ruled that basically a corporation can give as much can give to any kind of candidates they want or anything because it's free speech. So they their corporations are granted the same basically rights that any American citizen has, but they have much deeper pockets. We look so they're not really states; they're people. Mostly. If that makes any but, sense, yeah. I don't know what it's like Proxy in J, Latvia or the European Union. Well, again, if you're trying to get me to defend uh, the behavior of big corporations in the system that currently <laughs> I'm not, exists, I'm not. I'm not. I mean, that's. Trying to, I'm just trying to make. A, I'm, I'm just trying I'm not, to make. I'm not going to do that. Um, <clears throat> No, it's fine. I'm just trying to get a conversation. Sure, yeah. Here. Well, we're, we're just warming up. It's just 18 minutes in, guys. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, here's the thing. Um, uh, again, I I don't disagree with the kind of you know diagnoses of the problem. Um, I I disagree on some of the causes. The way I look at it is, uh, I am a believer in the iron law of oligarchy. I do think that's a that's a real sociological phenomenon you can observe. Uh, whenever there's an organization that has any significant amount of size or complexity, there's always going to be an oligarchy of one form or another that's that's truly running the show. And you can even look at direct democracies in history, and most of the time what you've got really is is a small click or two kind of really pulling the strings and uh, swaying the, the masses, so to speak, and calling the shots. So... I, I think the iron law of oligarchy is a, a real thing, a serious thing. So I did a, a podcast on it a while ago. I think that if a state exists, there is always going to be an oligarchy running it, regardless of the constitutional form of the state, regardless of if it's an absolute monarchy with a single king or a dictatorship with a single guy at the top, there still have to be all of his functionaries that actually carry out his orders. Otherwise, he's just, you know, some asshole with a mustache and an opinion. Um, and if you look at a democracy, same thing. In practice, it always ends up working out one way or another to really an oligarchy, a small elite group running things. Because I think the iron law of oligarchy is a real thing, I look at every, every state is going to be that way in practice, regardless of its constitutional uh, theoretical form. And so that's why I see the state as something that is so dangerous, because once it exists then it is like a tool waiting there to be picked up by whoever's the most ruthless or has the most money or whatever. And if you if you simply make the state absolute over economics and like remove all private enterprise what whatsoever, then you're left with you know the what were they called in the old Soviet Union? The the nomenclatura, yes, yes, you the know, nomenclatura, you, exactly the the bureaucrat. Yeah, the bureaucrat you, you just end up right, right, like an animal farm. You you just end up with, you know, pigs in charge that are walking around and talking like the old bosses you were trying to get rid of. So that that's how I see it. Okay, so we have apparently defined some problems here, and another problem of them is like the people themselves, because if you would go out on the street and talk to your average person or about 
these complicated issues, I don't think they would be very much interested in this. I don't really think uh, a lot of people care about all this stuff. And uh, I dislike people who, for example, vote without even thinking about what they're doing here. And we're sitting here and talking about these problems, and we're, we're basically focused, as far as I know, on how to make people's lives better in general. That's, I, guess, I guess we can agree that the common goal of, of all of us and of our political views would be to live in a society which benefits all people living there, right? Well, what do you, what do, you do if the people don't want to live in such a society that they actually just don't care? I guess it's a matter of educating them or something. How do you, how do you make people think about what's, what's good for them and what's best for them and how do they act accordingly? I'll start with CJ then this time. Yeah, okay. Gee, that that's a that's a tough question. Um because I think it's something we would probably would all agree, right? That kind of the masses in general, pretty much almost everywhere you go, are you know, not interested in deep questions of economics or political science or philosophy or whatever. And that yeah, that ought to be step one is simply getting them to even think about these things at all. And how to get them woken up. Number one, I think, is what all three of us, each in our own way, uh, does, which is, you know, to try and put out what you can of expressing what you think are the problems and um, potential solutions to them. And, you know, just whatever you think is, is really a correct diagnosis of the problem and a correct proposal to solve them, um, put that out there any medium you can. Uh, as, as Glenn was saying before, you know, the, the gatekeepers, kind of another symptom of this, the gatekeepers in general are dead or dying and, and rapidly fading in irrelevance. I mean, hardly anybody under the age of 50 gets significant amounts of their information from TV network news and from, you know, old line newspapers and that sort of thing. So I think we are doing at least some of what's possible of what we can to try and encourage people to think for themselves, you know. Um, I I put out the way I see things um, on my podcast, but, you know, I always try to throw in there as much as possible. Like, you know, you your mileage may vary. Do your own research, do your own thinking. Um, but I don't know if it's ever possible to get the vast majority of people really kind of switched on and awake and thinking. I don't, I don't know if it's possible. I mean, I, I would love it if it was, but um, a lot of times I have my doubts. Yeah, but one one thing that I have to say about all this gatekeeper stuff is that on the internet, a lot of people just don't even read the article and don't even read what's being stated because there, there was this research which stated that uh, 70% of people just read the headline of the article and don't even get into the article themselves and they just form opinions of the online headlines, which can be completely lying and terrible because there is like no, no sort of quality of information there. Which also, sure. which also presents and, a problem, obviously. Sure, and this, this is why I'm I'm not a fan of kind of the religion of democracy, uh, that it's the all-purpose solution to every problem. Because, you know, these these uh, people who are for whatever reason, you know, and I'm I'm not trying to put any of them down because you know plenty of them are smart in a lot of ways, and plenty of them are you know good at lots of things and whatever. I'm not trying to put anybody down, but you know people who don't even make the effort to really kind of inform themselves and try and figure out what they really think about things, then the system says, you're not competent to run your own life. That's why you need rulers. 
But even though you're not competent to run your own life, you're competent to have a say in choosing your rulers. So on the one hand, the masses are incapable of running their own lives. That's why they need, you know, a state. But then we're told that the masses should choose the people running the state. You know, it's it's kind of a weird sort of a thing that has some logical problems. Yeah, I mentioned this in the last episode as well at one point, because uh, I, I think that we should challenge every opinion that exists, and the fact that we have stopped arguing about whether or not democracy is actually good tends to people forgetting why we actually live in democracies these days, preferably, preferably republics. Glenn, what's your opinion then? Um, I don't think anyone is thinking at all. I think a large portion of the people that are thinking, th- are claimed to be thinking, are just doing what they're they're thinking about what they're thinking as a reaction to the other person. If I can get into modern politics again, because I hardly get to do this, I don't support Donald Trump, but I understand why people do. And part of it is getting into what we're talking about, because if you say I am, fr- I'm from the rural South and I am from that kind of South of the Earth land. And the one thing you always get from that when they talk about, you know, New York or Los Angeles is that these people are constantly getting an earful of people sitting up in ivory towers telling them, I know what's best for you. Um, You do not vote in your own interest. Let me tell you what your interests are and you should vote that way. And they become resentful of that, like you could understand. I mean, I live in West Virginia where... um, and the Matewan Mines, if you've ever heard of the, the Matewan story, that is where a, a corporation, a mining company, the, um, the miners attempted to unionize. So the mining company hired some mercenaries, thugs essentially, to just come and shoot them all while they were sleeping in their tents. And so the South are what we would consider the rural or the flyover states or whatever like that. They kind of grew up in this place where someone was coming to them, telling them, I know what is best for you. Here you go. And then they saw all those dollars fly right out of their state. They saw themselves being paid in company script and going to the company store. And if they tried to change things, somebody just came and shot them. They saw the whole carpet bagging thing after the Civil War. They saw, you know, and things like that. People coming in saying, I'm from the North. I'm from the West. I'm from New York. Let me tell you your business. And it's a reaction to that. On the other end, you say you have the more left-leaning politics, the whole Bernie Sanders populism thing. This always comes around. It used to be Ralph Nader. Now it was Bernie Sanders. Um, in, in the past, it's been, you know, Goldwater or anything like that. Somebody that comes along and says, you are being attacked by those people over there. If you give them power, they will destroy everything. They will, you know, make your lives miserable. They will start World War III. They have their finger on the button. All that. You are being attacked is always the tale, is always the message. And so while I don't support politics, and, and I, I get an earful every time I tell somebody I don't vote, is telling people that what my ultimate uh, response to that is, I don't trust anyone that tells me that I should be afraid and they're going to protect me. Because uh, protect always seems to be in air quotes and the only free cheese is in a mousetrap, as they used to say in the Soviet Union. So I don't. I think that democracy is so hard and things 
tend to kind of over time stray toward dictatorships or absolutism or whatever is just that you can't get everybody on the same page because everybody is acting in their own interest. And if you want to talk about it in economic terms, they call it being rational. And purely economic terms, that means whatever they're doing, they believe they're getting more benefit than cost. So as long as that's happening, everyone's going to keep doing what they're doing. So what are the costs? What are the benefits? I have no clue, but I just know everybody wants me to be afraid and I don't like it. But Glenn, again, again, I've, I've got to chime in and say, I actually agree with most <laughs> of what you just said. Um, I also don't vote. And uh, like you, I, I don't support Trump, but I understand the, the appeal. Um, I'm from the South, from the deep South and, you know, not, not from a very hoity toity background or anything like that. And, you know, most of the people that I'm, I'm friends with, and that I interact with on a regular basis are that way. And, you know, a lot of them even more blue collar than me now that I've got a real cushy job teaching college history. But, um, you know, I, I, I completely um, agree with that, that why it's a reaction. And I also agree completely that I don't think I'm qualified to tell anybody else how to live their life or what to do with their time or what to do with the fruits of their labor, or anything like that. And for me, at least, that belief that I'm not competent to tell anyone else to, how to live their life, I'm not competent to plan society, and I don't believe that anyone else is, and I certainly don't trust anyone else to, and that's the reason why I'm opposed to, well, that's one of the reasons why I'm opposed to the state, because to me, the state, by definition, is a violent monopolist of coercion and aggression, and if nothing else, that means claiming the right to tell people how to live their lives. Oh, you've, you've read your Max Weber, I see. <laughs> yeah, uh, I, suppose, I suppose this show is uh, now turned into uh, three jaded men on black and white television with cigarettes and booze talking about an extremely depressing thing. <laughs> I, wow. think, I, think, I think Chris was really hoping you and I would get in an argument, CJ. I think, no, 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 actually... Uh, Actually, I didn't. This is, the, this is an interesting idea because uh, I, I want – actually, what I want to comment on this one is that with you guys, I believe that we can clearly see that politics is more like a horseshoe than a line, even though I – I believe you'd be on the opposite spectrums on that, but you're so close up in the end there. If we look at the politics of the, her, uh, the horseshoe, we would be like the triangle surrounding the horseshoe and being there at the edges or something. I don't even know. Um, yeah, but what would be the – the ideal society, what, what, what would be the world you would love to live in? What would be the world where everything is okay for you? Like, what's, what's the motto of your, of your choosing? Uh, I'll, I'll go. Um, and I think this is where we'll finally diverge, CJ, is I believe that we need a strong, uh, some type of strong government to watch corporations because in a state of lawlessness and uh, complete deregulation, corporations form armies. Like we just did our form. We just did um, that. That's scarier to me than anything. I mean, we think you know whatever Starbucks being on every corner is bad. Imagine when the you know the British East India Company, this this tea conglomerate, essentially commanded armies. That to me is terrifying. But they were allowed to do that because they were given free reign in in the name of you know creating capital and making their investors happy to go into places, you know, set up banana republics that were favorable to their own business interests. 
kill anybody who got in their way and continue to exploit and rape whatever place they got to because who cares about those people over there? And so I would think that we would need very heavy regulation on these corporations because even think about think about how you know when we talk about like you know the influence of independent media um you know in the 1940s 50s there were upwards of 50 different media companies now there are what three four so i mean who that is talk about gatekeepers now i mean yes and, and, you know, whenever I make a stand like this, I, you know, everybody's looking for chinks in my armor. Oh, look, there's your iPhone, Glenn. You're on a computer right now. Who do you think makes those? Well, yeah, that's fine. I'm not, go- I'm not saying that I need to go live in a cave and eat grass. But there needs to be someone there to say, okay, this is getting out of hand. I mean, think about like the economic, I'm sorry to keep using uh, U.S. because this is really all I know, but think about like the stock market crisis of like, you know, 2008. These were people that were allowed to gamble betting against America, within America, and when their illegal shit that you or I would have gone to jail for if we tried, failed, the government paid them back. Why? Well, they're too big to fail. Why? Let them fucking com- let let break them up. Make them compete again. Don't allow these types of mergers that made you know three or four banks hold all the wealth in America. Um, you know why? You know how is how is how are we in such an income disparity now? Why do why are eighty percent of all stocks anyway in America held by what the top three percent of Americans? Why are, why is this allowed to happen? So why so we're all fighting over scraps while they're all telling us, hey, one day you're going to be rich. You're not. The game is rigged. That's because no one's telling them not to or overseeing them. So in my ideal world, people would just not participate in the bad companies and there would be somebody there like a, on a corporation cops, I guess you could say, to kind of oversee this stuff. Okay, to, but uh, an important question here, which I want to, want to ask you, Glenn, is how would this government work? Like, what's the political leanings? How this government especially would be set up, the strong government that you want? Well, you can look at examples like uh, Sweden, Iceland, Germany. They pretty much do that already. They have – it's a mixture of democracy and socialism and the truest sense. And, you know – I think that's okay. I mean, socialism becomes such a a dirty word in America. I don't even know how, you know, when people will say like, keep the government out of Medicare or something like that. I have no idea what that means. Um, or, you know, every time you draw, I, so I don't think socialism necessarily is a bad thing because I think the government needs to be there for the things that people, the average person can't do, say constructing highways, fire department, police, uh, you know, defense, things like that. We do need a government to kind of move the big things, but the government doesn't need to be telling you whether or not you can buy birth control pills or anything like that. Things to be a little more regulated than they are today, and we should get rid of things like world banks and uh, trade agreements that have allowed corporations to go and move over to other uh, countries and exploit them to death, essentially, because it's terrible what they do in other countries that you know we know nothing about. Okay. Well, prophecy. That's an interesting opinion. By the way, on, on these on these things, uh, Bernie Sanders, even though he's being called a socialist, would be a moderate right wing person here, just because all of your all of your politics are 
Huh. So weird. There is no. There is yeah. Kind of interesting. There is no. There is no. There is no. There is no actual left wing party in America. There's right and center right. But but yeah. What do you what, what do you think, CJ? I, I look at it differently, and I look at kind of the to me the structural elements that cause these great concentrations of of wealth and resources. I always tend to see the state's finger, fingerprints on those things. And I, when I look at a genuinely open, free, competitive market, I see centrifugal tendencies, not centripetal. Now, people would often say, well, how come then there's so much concentrations of, of wealth and blah, blah, blah now? And again, my response to that would be that is under this kind of corporate fascism, uh, mercantilist sort of a thing that we have. And my argument would be that the the concentrations of of wealth and resources in the hands of corporations um, they can be traced back to the state in a variety of ways because only the state has the ability to legally deploy force and coercion and corporations can't now they now they can get the state to do it on their behalf and they can do it themselves and then get the state to give them um, a pass. And since the state is a legal monopolist of dispute resolution and arbitration and um, all that kind of stuff, there's kind of no no recourse. Basically, if if you're harmed and the state, for whatever reason, decides to turn a blind eye to it, there's no one else you can go to. So anyway, I I look more to in my analysis, um, people like Benjamin Tucker, uh, Lysander Spooner, uh, the kind of what would have been called individualist anarchists or market anarchists, even Proudhon sometimes actually sort of leaned this way. And there's um, some interesting uh, exchanges between these guys in the 19th century. But you've got a whole bunch of different kind of state-involved monopoly sort of things going on. You've got land, right, where um, historically governments are who's concentrating land resources. They're giving it to their cronies. You know, you look at how uh, land got distributed in Europe the way it was historically. Uh, it's because states are, you know, handing out uh, estates to their to their buddies and things like that. You've got resources being um, uh, concentrated in the hands of small elites. You've got the land title procedures and land grant procedures that are, you know, totally ridiculous. If you look at colonial America, and all the colonies had their different um, procedures whereby one would claim land. And the colonies that ended up with a tiny oligarchy owning these gigantic tracts of, you know, 10,000, 50,000, whatever acres, those were cases where the state claimed that land and then chartered it to one of the colonial government's buddies or one of their own guys or whatever. And if you look at the colonies where they put in effect more of a homesteading kind of situation, uh, where it was more you had to actually go and, you know, do something with the land yourself, then you ended up with a much more kind of, you know, middle bell curve where um, you had far fewer of gigantic estates. And instead, what you had was a lot more people in the middle who owned little modest, you know, family farms and whatever. So the state, by monopolizing this procedure by which one says, you know, who owns what land and resources, it always ends up going to, to a few. 
Even in the case of the Homestead Act in the United States, most of the really good land ended up going to the railroad corporations and people like that. Um, and then basically the small homesteaders were, were uh, wrestling for the dregs. Um, you've got the, the government monopolizing money and credit. And yes, they use the, the banks as kind of their intermediaries. And sur- sure, there's a, there's a symbiotic relationship where the banks profit and then the state profits from the bank activities. You know, these banks are also the ones financing the government debt and things like that. Um, the state gives massive monopolistic powers to corporations via intellectual property. So, you know, through patents and other forms of intellectual property, that's in practice mostly just a giant massive corporate welfare exercise. Agribusiness, as, as uh, Glenn already mentioned, just absolutely rife with, with uh, state subsidies and privileges and all these sorts of things. Um, state monopoly on security and, and all the graft that involves. Um, regulatory protectionism. Uh, I look to something like The Triumph of Conservatism by Gabriel Kolko and other historians along that line, and I see basically that anytime there's a regulatory agency designed to look after corporations, well, not every time, but the vast majority of the time anyway, that regulatory agency in, in a phenomenon known as regulatory capture is working on behalf of the industry. And in fact, in many cases, it's the large companies in those industries themselves who push for the creation of those regulatory agencies in the first place. Not because they wanted to have a freer market, but because they wanted to cartelize their industry and reduce competition because really large corporations don't like free market competition because uh, Christoph said before that large corporations become like states, and I agree they do in a lot of ways. And one of the ways is that they they get kind of bureaucratic and stupid. And so large corporations don't like genuine open free market competition. That's why they're always trying to put in place barriers to entry that make it harder for you know the, the new guy, the little guy, whatever you want to call him, to compete with them. On any sort of a playing field. That's why, uh, you know, if you go to start a business, you you find out that there's all these massive barriers to you doing it, and they come in so many forms, you know, too numerous to count. But basically, you know, you, you have to get a hundred thousand dollar license to drive a taxi. Now Uber's getting around that, so we see, you know, the the technology and the much more anarchistic realm there. It's still not fully anarchistic, but um, much more of kind of a person to person, human beings voluntarily interacting and you can get a much cheaper and much more comfortable in most cases cab ride in a big city by using uber than by using a licensed government approved taxi so i look at all this stuff and then combine that with all the police state with you know the war on drugs and things like that that I'm not going to argue at all. Don't cause, you know, massive amounts of misery and structural poverty. They absolutely do. But again, the state is is what is not not just that it has, you know, the guns and the boots, but it has its own mythology. Um I see statism in a way as being from my perspective anyway, sort of like um a religion or a superstition in the sense of people have a completely different set of morality for what the state does than they do for just kind of other people. So if I have a, a, a property dispute with my neighbor and I preemptively just 
bomb his house, everybody would immediately say, and with good reason, like, that's awful. And I'd be condemned and, and hopefully, you know, punished by somebody. But if the leader of country A and leader of country B have a boundary dispute and one bombs the other, that's called foreign policy. Right? That's, that's called, you know, being a, being a firm statesman and a dynamic leader. So um, anyway, my, my belief in anyone who's, who's interested, anybody listening who's interested in, you know, getting much fuller of a fleshing out of a lot of these, these ideas uh, than I could possibly do here, I would recommend a great book to look at if you're interested in any of this, uh, any of any of what I'm saying about my perspective, is a book called Markets Not Capitalism. Uh, Markets Not Capitalism, it's a collection of essays edited by um, Gary Chartier and somebody else, I forget. And um, anyway, it's it's a very decentralizing kind of look at at a truly freed market and what it might be like and how much we have not had freed markets, really. We've had, you know, some partial freedom here and there and so on. But, um, yeah, I think you run into this problem of, like I was saying before, the iron law of oligarchy and who's writing the regulations, who's enforcing them, and how do you make sure that there's not corruption? How do you make sure there's not, you know, favoritism? How do you make sure regulatory capture is not happening? And how do you make sure that even if there's not conscious, intentional uh, regulatory capture taking place, how do you make sure that the regulatory agencies themselves don't start doing things that are no longer about protecting consumers or the environment or anything like that, but are simply uh, hobbling businesses and making it so that even an honest person with good intentions who's not one of these you know, cartoon Monopoly men characters... Um, is able to to start a business and and actually make things of value to then offer for sale to people. Um, how do you how do you ensure that that doesn't happen? Well, anyway, my my ideal society in short would be one in which there is a a truly free market of only voluntary interaction amongst people, uh, wherein it's generally accepted not to aggress upon another, and I think it is desirable to have a you know, less oligarchic distribution of wealth and all these sorts of things. I agree that that's a problem and I don't think it's good for society. Um, but I believe that a, a truly free market tends to be centrifugal. I believe that it is harder for someone to amass massive amounts of wealth and resources the way they do under the systems that we actually have today. Uh, so, okay, I think, no, I think I'm interesting done. because uh, I thought about all of this and yeah, if if the if uh, intellectual property laws definitely I I think uh, play a huge huge deal in this. For example, those those are actually actually an interesting recent invention, and I don't, I don't know if without patent laws, Bill Gates would be where he is right now. Yeah, a lot of really huge mega corporations, a really big part of their their wealth and privilege comes from intellectual property laws. Right, because I mean, I think it all changed when a, a um, well, intellectual property laws. I think uh, started with the best of intentions, like everything else, and that it was supposed to protect you with a catch. It was supposed to protect you during for your lifetime, and then when you died, it belonged to the people, right? But yeah, play, I think the first one that I think really changed is when Disney officially was kind of given Mickey Mouse like a perpetual 
monopoly, a, a perpetual license to own Mickey Mouse. And once that happened, things kind of, the floodgates were open. Now everybody can own anything they want to now and forever, which, um, yeah, I mean, because that, that stops. Cause what we're talking about that, that, that does, what was it meant to encourage innovation now has the opposite effect of discouraging innovation because once you try anything, somebody like, when you think of like the, the patent trolls tried to go after the podcast recently, I guess something that comes, something, something that would come after us, um, Something that, that like um, so rather than using these laws to encourage innovation by saying, hey, if you go out on a limb and take the risk of trying to invent something new and it works, you will profit from it. You will be protected. You could those are being twisted to discourage innovation by saying this is ours. You can't have it now. So it's been perverted into a way that is, I think, bad. So, yeah, that definitely is something that needs to be reformed. But will it? I mean, is Disney ever going to give up Mickey Mouse for the greater good and to say Mickey Mouse now belongs to the people or whatever? When George Lucas dies, Star Wars will belong to the people. No, it belongs to the Mickey Mouse man now. You know, it's like, you know, it doesn't really. But I mean, so we only have a few things now. So I guess anybody can make a Frankenstein movie. And I understand that Sherlock Holmes recently lapsed into the public domain. So we can all get weird. Yeah, and they're, 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 not, they're not making this uh, Pride and Prejudice with zombies yeah, <laughs> for some reason. Yeah, yeah. so I guess we can, all, we can all get together next week and make a Sherlock Holmes movie. But I mean, uh, you know, I mean, but we're not going to get together next weekend and make a Star Wars movie, you know, after George Lucas dies now, because, you know. Uh, now now Disney owns it and they can hold that forever and they're never going to give it up and the government's never going to tell them because what can the you know the government cannot rob them of their property because corporations are also private citizens without due process of the law and what law are they breaking at this point so it's pretty much fucked right now is patent law so I can see what you're saying with that uh, academia also suffers from all of this because uh, we had a big fuss over here in Europe, especially due to some of these new deals that are being made, uh, where where the kind of intellectual property laws of that when become before a war becomes public domain would be like 150 years instead of 70 after after the death of, of things. And if you, if you are a serious academician, you know that you need to read a lot of journals and sources, and you need a lot of research for your for your work. That technically, and I, I think. That should be kind of free collaboration between scientists, but there are now companies who just profit on you know stockpiling themselves on scientific journals and forcing scientists to spend a lot of their budget to, to kind of uh, just just pay them a lot of sums of money so that they could get access to the papers that they need. Not to say that scientists shouldn't be recompensated, but and, and this is a question to you, Prof. CJ. Uh, how would actually science work in a completely free market? Because, for example, na things like NASA and some truly, truly large projects, such as getting a man to the moon, would require a corporate would require cooperation on a massive, massive scale, and that would require a a large, concentrated amounts of money, anyways. Um, and a truly free market, yeah, I understand your idea that capitalism should work. And free market should work if everyone is kind of like their own private enterprise. But yeah, and, and, th and this will annoy you, but I'm doing this on purpose, so uh, please don't mind me. Uh, how, how would roads be built? How would we send a man to the moon in such a free market society? And don't worry, I'll pester Len with uh, questions like this later, too. I'm not biased. Okay, sure. Um, well, part of the answer, I would say, is 
who actually builds roads now in most cases are are contractors. So um, at least at least in the states, I don't know how it is elsewhere, but most road building and maintenance is actually done by companies um, that are hired by the state, you know, whoever it is, uh, state, federal, local, whoever it is in charge of that particular road. It's usually a company now because it's being directed and everything by the state. It is often going to someone who's like the brother-in-law of the governor or something like that, right? And the other thing is that the the roots of of how much roads are built and where they go are chosen for political reasons rather than through kind of people expressing their real preferences through some sort of voluntary exchange. And so I think there's a lot of roads that are built that probably don't need to be there. Uh, and the only reason they're there is because for political reasons or whatever, they were built there. And then once the roads are built, then kind of people, you know, place themselves in various ways, accommodating what's there. And so I would, I would actually point some of the finger of guilt at the problems of suburban sprawl and all, all those sort of related things that go with that at the state, because who built the interstate highway system, right? Um, that was in, in a lot of ways, a subsidy to a lot of people. Uh, the interstate highway system is a subsidy to builders of, you know, suburban cookie cutter houses. It's a subsidy to the car companies. It's a subsidy to, uh, in today's world, state run and maintained road systems are a subsidy, a form of corporate welfare to agribusiness and also to those big box retailers that nobody likes, but everybody seems to buy stuff from. Um, and, and I'm not, I'm not saying that sarcastically. In a lot of cases, it's because you don't have many other choices. And what, what makes things like massive amounts of long distance trucking profitable to big corporations is socializing the costs of building and maintaining the roads onto the general public at large. And so honestly, my answer would be, I'm not sure if we need, if we would need as many roads uh, if we hadn't already had them built and kind of had society adjust to that. And, you know, what other forms of transportation might, might, might we be using if the state hadn't decided that it was just going to go crazy building roads? You know, what else might we have as an alternative had we been left to our own devices to kind of voluntarily interact with each other and figure out what we wanted to do? And there were railroads built out west um, and in the East, too, for that matter, there were railroads built with um, just private capital, with the vast majority of railroads, at least in the West in the United States, were built, subsidized eight ways from Sunday by the state. And one, and it might be the only one, it's the only one I know of, that was built in kind of a purely free market way, was the Great Northern Railroad, built by a guy named James J. Hill. And what happened was when you had the railroad companies building with state subsidies, it distorted their incentives to behave in what would normally be a rational way because it changed what was rational. Um, again, kind of like what Glenn was saying, uh, if you make it profitable for people to behave in a certain way, they're going to behave that way. So in the case of the railroads out west, most of which were getting government welfare, um, for example, the government would pay them in money or land per mile of how much track they laid. Well, when you do that, guess what? They don't choose the most direct route, right? They, they choose, if they're connecting two towns, they try to choose a pretty circuitous route. 
uh, because that's going to then cause them to get more money or land or whatever it is from the government. Likewise, they were um, the, the, the government connected railroads out west. Um, they would oftentimes build in terrible places to build because they got more of a subsidy when they were building in rough, rougher land or steeper land or whatever. And in addition to that, the state-connected railroad companies, because they were so, you know, in this symbiotic relationship with the politicians, if they ever ran into trouble with the Indians, they were very quick and very happy to socialize the cost of, quote-unquote, solving that problem onto the taxpayer via the U.S. military. And so the government-connected railroads frequently are, are pressuring um, Washington, D.C. to send out the cavalry and clear these Indians out of the way of progress. Now, contrast that with James J. Hill, who built his railroad entirely with private investment capital and so on, with no subsidy. And not only was it a higher quality railroad, it was, it was better built. He built slower. The government-connected railroad companies built fast to get their subsidies as fast as possible. James J. Hill's doing it all with his own money uh, and that of his investors. And he took his time. He built a better quality railroad. He built it in the most rational route possible that he could he could do. He built a railroad that went all the way from St. Paul to Seattle. And get this, every time James J. Hill's railroad uh, ran into Indians, because he was not connected to politicians at the time and was not interested in using politicians to solve his problems, guess what? James J. Hill interacted peacefully with the Indians, and he did his best to make deals with them, to work out, hey, you know, what what can we pay you? What kind of deal can we make? Um, try and persuade you, that sort of thing. And so he had, with the Indians that he dealt with, he had an entirely peaceful interaction. And um, a as a result, he had a better railroad. So I would just point to that as an example of, of a, a purely private sector infrastructure project that was superior to the competition that was getting heavily subsidized and so on. And so what you're saying is that in a truly free market, we would have not only sent the man to the moon faster, but with, about, with also less resources and probably faster? Well, I, I, don't know about, I don't know about faster. But the other thing I would say is that sending a man to the moon would probably not happen in a, in a truly freed market until there was reason to think that there was some sort of, you know, profitable benefit of some type to doing it. Whereas what happened with, with NASA was they sank a bajillion dollars and sent a man to the moon. And what did we really get? I mean, yeah, we got the kind of satisfaction of team America made to the moon first and made those Russians look dumb, you know, but okay, and that did that did exactly what for the average American person, other than like you know making them feel pride that that they're part of a team that they're not even really a part of. Yeah, know? but you see, my my allegory to the moon here is it, it also kind of represents purely theoretical science because we need that. And for example, you know, teaching history is not exactly making straight up profits. I mean, over here in, Lat in Latvia, we can see that a lot more financing goes to the applicable sciences, but where would, where would pure mathematics be, for example, which has proven to be extremely important to our knowledge in general? Where would theoretical physics be and Large Hadron Collider? And where would all these theoretical sciences be in, in such society? Because 
all this theoretical research, even though it's not profitable at all until we figure out some applicable way and you know, some applicable way of how make how to make profit from these these discoveries, I suppose, these inventions, you know, we would kind of lag behind, I I guess. And that's that's an important challenge to your your system, I believe. And don't worry, Glenn will get his treatment. <laughs> well, <laughs> Uh, well, I would say that the the Soviet Union put a lot of resources into sciences, including the pure science. Uh, and you know, the Soviet Union produced a lot of brilliant mathematicians and you know all kinds of other sciences as well. Um, I think the reason the Soviet Union didn't work out was nothing to do with there not being plenty of intelligent people within its borders. Uh, but you know, then what did that do for the the average Soviet citizen's ability to, you know, live in some degree of comfort and and uh, access, you know, the, the things in life that that they believed would make them, you know, have a better time? Um, all, all the all the brilliant physicists in the world don't don't necessarily do that. And I would look back to in history, there have been times where the state is not heavily involved. Or you know, barely involved at all in, in things like subsidizing science, and um, you can find examples of where that's happening, and yet science is still doing very well uh, for a good chunk of of its history. And and I forget the exact years, but definitely a lot of the 19th century, and maybe even a century or two before that, uh, the British actually, the British state sent very little resources into things like scientific research. It was all done through private capital, uh, donations, and various other methods of funding these sorts of things. And during these years when when the British state was hardly involved directly in science or subsidizing it or encouraging it all, and by contrast, many of the other states in Europe, including uh, Germany and France, were heavily involved, the state heavily involved in science. Uh, Britain was actually leading the world for quite a while in in scientific discoveries, even in fields that that were not, you know, directly related to industry. By the way, they were also leading the world at the same time in things like industrial innovation as well. So, I would say that um, we often have a tendency, once the state takes over a function, to assume that then. With Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. 
without the state, that function would never be met or that need would never be met. Now, it may be met in a very different way from what we're used to. But, I mean, imagine a country where, for whatever reason, the state decided it was going to monopolize the manufacturing of all footwear. They're like, you know, it's just too much, too important of a human right to have good footwear. And so the state's going to take over all the shoe factories uh, and, and run them to make sure everyone's got a good pair of shoes. Well, first, first thing that would happen is... Has happened before. Yeah, exactly. First thing that would start to happen is, um, well, anytime you have a monopoly of any sort, whether the monopolist calls itself a, a company or whether the monopolist calls itself a, a corporation or whether it calls itself a government. And, and by the way, I would say that the state is a corporation. Uh, it, it is a unique corporation with certain powers and privileges that other corporations don't have, but ultimately it's a corporation. And once you have a monopoly, we all know what happens. It's not even economics 101. It's like economics 001. Once you have a monopoly in any good or service, what immediately begins to happen, and it, it can unfold gradually, it doesn't always happen the next day, but what begins to happen is, over time, the price for the good or service that is being provided by a monopolist, the price of that good or service will go up, and the quality of that good or service will go down. That always happens when there's a monopoly in something. And so, what we have is, is a, getting back to my shoe analogy, if, let's say, a state monopolized all production of shoes in a country and did it for a long time, right? Let's say did it for 200 years. And so generations of people come and go knowing nothing about the, um, you know, private market's ability to produce shoes. And the people who could remember what it was like before the state took over shoes, they die off, their kids and grandkids die off, right? And then they're taught they're taught in their schools every single day about the horrors of what life was like before the state shoe monopoly they're told oh it was awful nobody had shoes it was the worst thing ever whether that's true or not that's what they're told in their state schools and so they all believe it because what you're told when you're five most people believe the rest of their life and so imagine then confronting a person who had grown up under that state and saying listen you can get the state out of the shoe industry and they would say well, well, wait a minute. If we didn't have the state, who would build the shoes? And of course, we could tell them possible you know, ways that'll happen because we have experience with a relatively free market in shoes. But you can imagine how outlandish it would sound to someone who knew nothing else to be told that uh, voluntary interactions of people can actually result in shoes being made and distributed and made available and so on. So, by the way, about the shoes, uh, one thing that I, I'll quickly comment so that you can respond to this is that uh, I read a lot of Soviet history books in my time, and one of the arguments in favor of a socialist system was that in these books it was told that in a capitalist society, for example, the evil, evil corporate capitalist decides that he will now make a shoe factory. By the way, shoes are a great example on this one because they use it all the time. That's why I find it funny. But there was said that in a capitalist society, you know, the capitalist produces shoes, but then, you know, people only can, can have so many pairs of shoes. And at one point, when the profits fall down, they, the capitalist just closes the shoe factory, and that forces all the workers to just go out, go out as no one's buying more shoes, and just to, you know, become homeless and live terrible, terrible, terrible lives. While in the Soviet Union... 
as they stated, is that the government does the nice work of planned economy for you and plans out exactly how many shoes will the state need so the factory only will produce so many shoes. And then the, then the factory will be, according to the plan, switched to something else to fulfill that plan, and so on and so on. Now the paradox here is that, of course, uh, in Soviet Union factories were kind of actively encouraged to overproduce over the plan for some reason, which kind of contradicts their own argument, but I just wanted to put this in here so that so that you understand why why I laughed when you mentioned the shoe factories. Right. And I'm sure under that um, state-produced shoe situation, I'm sure everyone in the Soviet Union had like the best shoes around, and when you went to the stores, like there were just piles of really good shoes, right? Oh, um, no. <laughs> not so much? Oh, okay. Not, not really, no. Dang. My guess was way <laughs> off somehow. Wow. <laughs> somehow. Yeah, that's that's an interesting take. Glenn, do you have any comments on this one? Um, well, yeah, I mean, I guess when we keep talking about in a truly free market, I, I'm just too cynical, I guess. Um, it seems very utopian. Like, who, who enforces a truly free market? Because in my mind... Eventually, someone's going to be number. If we're all, if we're all me, all three of us are selling shoes. If somebody just, we're not all going to make the exact same amount of money. Our, Ladies our, and gentlemen, this podcast is not about shoes. No, but I mean, just like, but I mean, our, our, you know, me and CJ could team up and say, like, well, let's let's uh, let's knock him out of business for let's let's lower our prices below what Chris could afford, and then knock him out of business, um, and then we'll bring our prices right back up because there's that much less competition. Or maybe your shoes are just. But as long as, uh, but as long as there are no barriers to entry, it's just a matter of time. If there's an, an unusually high price, because for a moment on a competitive market there's a single firm in a field, and it's something that consumers want, and so the price goes up, that can endure, but it doesn't last very long. Because as long as there's a completely free barrier to entry, as long as there's nothing in the way of a person pooling together resources with other people and saying, man, they're charging 20 times for shoes what they used to cost. Let's make ours, you know, and, and charge less and we'll get all their business. So um, anyway, that that would, sorry, that would, uh, sorry for jumping in, but that would just be my quick retort to well, that. Well, then I would say like, well, I can't tomorrow decide I'm going to start an airline or I can't decide I'm going to start a supermarket chain tomorrow or I can't decide I'm going to go to the moon tomorrow. So uh, so over time, the people with the most resources are going to win, right? How what the barriers to entry are are natural. They they like um, I'm going to be discriminated against because I wasn't born with this amount of money. I did not have this type of luck or that type of situation, right? I mean, who, who enforces these free barriers to entry now? Well, I'm not saying that every every single individual would necessarily have. Uh, the startup capital by themselves to start a shoe factory. But in an economy of millions or hundreds of millions of people, there are people who have money. Not all of them are necessarily even super rich, but they pool together as investors and say, look, there's these ridiculously high, artificially high prices in whatever. And if we go into that 
into that industry. And of course, in a in a large economy, it wouldn't just be one group of people saying, "Hey, look at the look at those ridiculously abnormal, you know, inflated prices there. Let's get in on that." It would probably be lots of different groups of people. And what would happen is they would come in and they would uh, basically restore competition by. And again, am I saying it would happen the next day uh, if somebody temporarily took control of a market? No, uh, but there's a pretty good track record. And again, I, I'd refer to uh, the work of Gabriel Kolko on this, who, who by the way, is a leftist, um, looking at the, the so-called Gilded Age kind of right before the progressive era. And, and he did the, the actual hard research and found out that in the era just before the progressive era, Pretty much every American industry was getting more competitive rather than less. When you look at the the number of firms, the number of successful firms in each industry, they were getting more competitive. There were more firms competing, not less. And a lot of what the progressive era really was, was people um, seeking to cartelize their industries, to have barriers to entry. When I say barriers to entry... I mean like actual legal barriers in one form or another, or regulatory burdens that are so high that a new company, even if it had, even if it had enough capital to open a factory or open a store or whatever it is, um, couldn't afford that plus a bajillion dollars to deal with government regulators and hire a team of lawyers to comply with that. So that's what I mean by barriers to entry. I don't just mean the limits of not everybody has enough money to start their own factory tomorrow by themselves. By barriers to entry, I mean like actual state-imposed barriers that make it extremely difficult to even impossible, even for someone who has pulled the capital together from their own or from investors to start something up. But okay, but I mean, we did, we would have to change. We would because I mean, so before the Progressive Era, how does something like the East India Trading Company or Standard Oil or Merck or Bayer or any of that happen? Like how how if there were if they had they had no legal barriers to entry. So what 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 would stop somebody from abusing their privilege that they have to raise the amount of capital they have or the um, that whatever resources they have to do what they did, um, and then abusing that privilege once they have it. Well, um, some of those examples you mentioned were not in the United States, so the American progressive era wouldn't affect them one way or the other. Um, but well, I mean, just like in general, but like say Standard Oil or anything like that, or um, or you could say, um, or any other are the um, when they actually did try to bust up Microsoft briefly and then they failed. Are are the say the robber baron era kind of the the, the guilt yeah if we're talking about the gilded age or if we're talking about say um, the companies that came in and you know offered them the kind of reconstruction era in the south um, what who would stop them if they decided they were going to start exp like say if if Bill Gates tomorrow says I am a billionaire. I am now going to pay these. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna pay all of these people that are. I'm gonna buy all your debt. We're gonna bring back this. I'm gonna buy all these people that have these hundred thousand dollars student loans. I'm gonna buy your debt, and you will be completely debt free. But now you belong to me. Every day you have to lick my balls. And so, or if you don't, my army's gonna come and shoot you. 
who do we say the free market will eventually stop him from doing that? I know that sounds kind of funny, but the corporations have done this in the past, especially say if you want to get into the coal mining companies in the South and things like that. Well, I, I think that people have a, a a natural right to defend themselves from aggression. So uh, in that situation, I would completely sympathize with the people taking up arms into their own hands and fighting off Mr. Gates. This 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 podcast does not endorse uh, shooting Bill Gates. Well, well, if if he but the Second Amendment, people, I don't support you know, shooting him at the moment. I'm not a fan of his, but uh, you know, if he's if he's literally going out there and and making people his sex slaves, <laughs> uh, th- then I do support the right of those those who are on the receiving end of that to resist by whatever means necessary. So okay, now. And and this this one goes goes to Glenn because you mentioned Sweden and that's a bit of a, <laughs> a bit of a love hate relationship that okay. we have with with Sweden here because uh, Sweden uh, kind of dominates the bank market. I imagine so you yeah. have a we have a we have a state owned Latvian central bank. It does sure. not participate in the commerce whatsoever. It just regulates the bank industry. Most of the commercially owned banks in Latvia are now Swedish owned or Norwegian owned. And Sweden is this strong state that you mentioned, but they have some issues with, for example, their progressive tax rate. Even though I, I kind of can understand where that comes, where that comes from, because currently, at least in Latvia, we have what you might call a, a regressive tax rate due to the value-added tax, where essentially the poor people are spending more percentage of their income in basically paying taxes than the rich people. Because the capital, the capital tax and the tax for investing is is much much lower than the value-added tax, which means that if you basically spend large percentage of your income on goods, then you pay pay taxes on that one. Now you see, Sweden has progressive income tax, which is up to ninety percent, which leads a lot of uh, people who kind of kick in this one to actually leave Sweden. And even though Sweden has a lot of these mid-sized companies such as H&M and, and all that stuff, they they really kind of are lacking in the large, like really large com- company segment at this point. And there isn't, there actually, it is predicted that the Swedish economy will just go down in 20 years or so, that they're slowly stagnating because of all, because to pull off their, their strong government and their welfare state, they have to impose such high taxes that innovation is kind of extremely limited. And also, also they have very strict laws on how much can a CEO make, which I think is sort of an interesting thing. I don't, I don't know if it's a good thing or not, actually, because uh, they have extremely strict... I think they, they went a bit too far because they, under law, they severely limit how much money you can a CEO of a company make in, in relation to how much money can you pay a worker. So in your strong state, how would innovation actually happen? Because I, I agree with CJ here, because people need incentives, private incentives to, for example, create things. Like I always like to mention, Warhammer, Warhammer 40k would have never been invented in the Soviet Union, because that's, you know, that, that's not something which people already know that they need. So that can never be planned for. And if you have a 90, up to 90% tax rate, and even if you are completely successful with this and it goes crazy... And you're just not going to make any money. There are very low incentives on innovation. Which is also, by the way, it's very similar to the problem which I posed to the CJ about theoretical science and 
and all these all these other important project projects. But yeah, how would innovation happen in such a large state? What would the incentives for people be to actually operate and create some some new tiny little innovative things? As 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 we know in the case of these social democracies, the tax rate is really 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 high. So you would have to actually be a very, very large corporation to make huge profits, which are the things that, I, in my mind, drive innovation. Well, uh, to go back to one of your examples, uh, where is the Large Hydron Collider? It's in, it's in Switzerland. Right, but I mean, that, that's a very similar uh, you know, economical situation there. But um, I would argue that people are much more free to innovate then, because what is what is a bit what is a big controversy right now? Say like last year's Oscar, there was a hashtag Oscars so white, right? Because there was like, well, why are all of these you know best male actor awards? Why were they all white people? Why were why were these famous bands? Why are the Beatles white? Why? Why were the famous writers white? You know, why is a bunch of old dead white men if we're reading nineteenth century? 19th century literature. Why are we just learning about old dead white men? Well, at a certain point in American history, you could have been the most brilliant black person. You could have been, you know, a you could have been a black Einstein. You could have been, you could have been a great as great an actor as the greatest actors or directors. But you would have been black in America in the 19th century. So if you weren't a slave. You were living under very impoverished conditions. You did not have the opportunity to flex your genius. Um, you did not have, and you know what could be more capitalistic and profit motivated than uh, than slavery. Uh, you know that's free labor there, and we're shipping all that cheap cotton over there to England to finance the Industrial Revolution, which brought people to live in hovels and drink gasoline. Um, but. What I would argue is that people would be much more free to innovate if they didn't have to worry about, say, their medical bills bankrupting them, if they didn't have to worry about paying these insane high-speed internet bills. I think about, I mean, one of the arguments you always see here in America, I don't know if this is the same way, Kristaps, is that when people are complaining about, oh, the welfare state, oh, the, look at those, oh, that poor person, they used food stamps at the checkout line, but they had a cell phone, welfare queens. Certain things have become both expensive and necessities in the United States. Go to your job interview tomorrow if you want to argue about a welfare state and good luck getting that job after you've told your manager that you don't have a car and you don't have a cell phone. So, but they'll say, oh, you have a car, you have a cell phone, they have a refrigerator, things like this. If people didn't have to worry about deciding between paying for the rent or buying food this month, they might be a little freer to indulge their creative side, relax a little bit, and think outside the box. But it's hard to do that when you can't see past today. And the working poor is a real situation in America. Um, so I would argue that if these basic needs are met, like I, I am not going... I don't have decent insurance, so I am going to let a small problem become a big problem because I don't have fucking, I can't afford to go to the dentist this month. I can't afford to get my eyes checked. I can't afford a routine 
checkup. I can't, if I'm a female, I can't have access to birth control, abortions, things like that. Maybe if we didn't have to worry about that stuff, we might be a little create more creative. And if, and I think that if people do have these ideas, they are probably buried under this idea of a profit motive or having to go work at a gas station or having to be subservient to chattel slavery or having to be migrant fruit pickers that get paid a penny a bag because that's that's better that's a better profit motivation minimum wage is never increased uh, different things like that because it's just not profitable they wouldn't make as much money not even that their profits would go down their profits would just be less and how dare we not you know give them money so i think that and what what that was my question to cj is what who would who would convince the current powers that be to go, well, let's have some competition. Thank you. I mean, iPhone, Apple won't let Spotify release its newest update. And they're trying to, because they don't want it to compete with their streaming music service. Um, so what would make Apple tomorrow go, you know what? In the spirit of competition, we're going to release your, your update, Spotify. I don't see it happening. I would think that the basic necessities need to be met and everybody has the right to have their basic needs met. I don't believe in this dog eat dog world of capitalism. And I don't believe that you should have a certain position in society just because you happen to fall out of the right vagina. So I don't, I would argue that in a, if I can use an example of Iceland, I have a friend who lives there. You can, you can get, subsidies you can get government art grants because you want to be a rock and roll band you can get grants to buy instruments and go to a recording studio because fine arts are considered an important thing in their culture and their government and i asked him wow man i don't even know i don't even understand how you live we don't even have art programs or music programs in school here anymore or hardly even pe so how do you even live wait a minute what what's that huh you don't you don't have art programs. In they anymore. are they are very underfunded. Um, whereas when I would over here we have like spe- over here we have like specific art and music uh, schools in addition to the arts are very important, people. aren't they? But they're not very profitable. So fuck it. You're not going to get a good job. Tell somebody that you're majoring in music here, and they will immediately laugh at you because you're going to end up working at a gas station or a McDonald's. You can't have a life here if you want to be anything else but an office drone, a lawyer, or, you know, probably an investment banker because they're the only people who make any money. Why do you, why is Wall Street, you know, constantly reporting um, record profits, but the, the GDP of America is progressing by about 1% every year? It's because, you know, it all, it, uh, you know, trickle-down economics just means that they're peeing on us. I would argue if so many people, like, say... How many people did we lose because we made them slaves in America? Or we just made them victims of Jim Crow laws? Or they were women and they weren't allowed to speak? Or, you know, their life got changed? Or they weren't afford, able to afford health care, so they died of something that may have been preventable? Because they, they weren't able to go to the doctor and get a pap smear or a breast exam. It wouldn't be profitable to help those people because they don't have money. So... 
if we remove that profit motive and we remove that kind of magical thinking of everybody suddenly going to want to live in a Star Trek world where we just live for the betterment of each other, which I don't believe will ever happen. I believe somebody has to be the agreed upon third party to control these things. And we have to watch the watchers and the watchers have to be watched too. And ultimately it's up to the people because we made these corporations. We bought their shit in the first place. So, but how do we fix that? I don't know. But I think basic needs would only encourage innovation because we don't have to worry about any of all that. So that's my answer to your question in a very roundabout way, uh, Chris Tufts. Well, then I will now click to some news, which I would like you to comment, for example, about all the nonsense that is going on. Recently, BBC, which I read a lot, reported that UK's fruit picking industry is, uh, is kind of emerging to suffer serious loss due to Brexit. I find it funny because uh, their fruit-picking industry is where most of our economical migrants from Latvia went to. So that's the first kind of interesting thing. And the other news that I kind of found while I was looking for that article to quote is that uh, six hours ago, apparently, a certain New York City billionaire, John Kostimatidis, is now offering a financial reward for information leading to the arrest of ice cream shoplifters. Uh, from the article, the grocery store tycoon and former mayoral candidate took to Twitter to offer a bounty of $5,000. He told the New York Post newspaper that thieves are stealing cartons of ice cream in order to resell them to smaller shops, known as bodegas. Police have received 250 complaints and made 130 arrests. This Castamares guy apparently has tweeted that the bandits are wreaking havoc on New York City supermarkets and told the newspapers that the thefts are being encouraged by the bodegas, these smaller smaller uh, stores. He shared an example of an attempted theft at one of his stores earlier this week in the Chelsea neighborhood of Manhattan, in which the thieves were filmed on mobile phone cameras, like you said before about the freedom of media. A man and a woman shoved 80 tubs of ice cream into bags and then ran from the store. But police say that the couple abandoned the frozen treats on the street after they were chased by the store employees. City officials have called the resale of ice cream a public health risk, since the dairy products can become contaminated with germs if left outside of the freezer. I think this story is silly and brilliant and contains examples of everything that we have talked here. So I would like to hear your commentary. Glenn, you go first this time. On the on the ice cream thieves? Yeah, I mean ice cream thieves, smaller guys stealing from big corporation to sell to resell it, city officials stating that it's a it's a health risk, which is silly. Actually, uh, I'm gonna inform my my listeners here, the expiration date on milk bags is a recommendation and actually before throwing your milk out because it's because it's expired, you should kinda give it a small taste and if it's okay, it's okay. Because they really have to, by, 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 at least in the European Union, by regulations, you have to put an expiration date on products that is at least five days before the real expected expiration date. That's why it's best before, not do not use after. Okay? And I think that's kind of all over the place. Uh, I don't know how it's like in the United States, but expiration date is actually more of a recommendation for starters. And if you take your ice cream out of the freezer, no, it doesn't instantly get contaminated. That's just another thing. That's that's my Soviet ramble how to save more money. 
I'm sorry. <laughs> but yeah, it's 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 it, this this ice cream story has everything. It has former mayoral candidate, government stating that everything is bad. Uh, some some exploits in Gonzo capitalism, I would state, even. Um, I would call this uh, class warfare, and I'll explain. Uh, Chelsea is a very expensive neighborhood in in New York City. Um, some of the highest uh, real estate in the country. Bodegas tend to be in those neighborhoods where those people shop. And um, those people have to shop at small stores because either they don't have the desirability or the availability or the demographics to support large uh, grocery stores like, say, a Whole Foods in America or even some of the bigger chains like, you know, Ralph's, Vons, Kroger, whatever, thing like that. So they have to go to small neighborhood independently owned grocery stores where obviously they can't lower their prices to compete with the bigger stores. Um, so they have to go. So these poor neighborhoods, um, I, you know, I don't advocate shoplifting or anything like that, but it's an outgrowth of the fact that they just can't compete. Um, because they don't have the economies of scale. They don't have the size to absorb the type of price decreases that they can do. They don't have loss leaders. They don't have the type of predatory store layouts that you could create when you have a very large supermarket to get people to impulse shop more. You can't do anything like that if you have a very small store with the the bulk of your profits comes from liquor and beer sales, um, miniature liquor and beer sales, something like that. Um, so people come in for food, they have to buy it much more expensively. Maybe they can't go to those neighborhoods. Maybe they don't have the resources to get there. Um, yeah. So this is kind of, to me, the kind of, yeah, it is what we're all talking about because, you know, those stores are resorting to kind of desperate measures to try to compete. Um, but the idea that they're going to become contaminated by being moved to those neighborhoods, I think is very loaded dialogue. We're all supposed to know what they mean. Wink, wink. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's a lot of different angles to, to approach this and I, I would look at the, the larger picture and kind of zoom the lens out and say, okay, what are the different things besides just economies of scale? Because economies of scale are a big deal in some some industries and not in others. In a lot of cases, economies of scale are counterbalanced by diseconomies of scale. And it's only when you have some sort of state involvement that's subsidizing somebody or is creating barriers to entry and things like that, that you get a situation in which economies of scale actually counterbalance diseconomies of scale. Um, and so I'm in favor of anything that is going to maximize the ability of the quote unquote little guy to improve their situation. And, um, and I don't just mean letting them deal with the situation there is now. I'm talking about radically undoing barriers to entry, you know, things like when you, when you look back at a lot of Americans, who were able to become successful after first arriving here as poor immigrants um, going back, you know, over a century, in many cases you find they did so by starting in a very, very humble, uh, low startup capital self-employment thing. The goal in this country used to be 
to become self-employed in some way. Now the goal is to become an employee, unfortunately. And I think there's a lot of different reasons for that. And a big one, I think, is that our schools, the way they currently are run, are largely geared towards producing worker drones. They're not geared towards producing independent thinkers and kind of self-starters and that sort of thing. But then there's also all these legal and regulatory barriers to starting up a really small business. And so these micro-businesses, which people oftentimes can get going and eventually slowly build up into something more significant, in a lot of cases, they're impossible to do or at least impossible to do legally. Like, for example, if a poor person... Um, you know, living in, in some in some poor uh, apartment complex or something like that. Just throwing out one potential example is they could say, you know, let it be known to the neighborhood. Hey, for five bucks, come to my house for five bucks. I'll give you a haircut. OK. And um, the five bucks would probably be a lot less than an official storefront barbershop. That's all, you know, has all the right business permits and licenses and all that kind of stuff. Well, really, because. Uh, over here in Latvia, I do get my hair cut for about five bucks. Yeah, well, um, <laughs> I'm, I'm he, sorry. here here it's tough to find many places, at least uh, around where I live in North Florida, it's tough to find many places where you can get a haircut for less than about 12 bucks on the low end. But um, anyway, I mean, suppose the prevailing, even in, even the, you know, quote unquote, poor barbershops in that area, the prevailing, you know, thing is is uh, 15 bucks for a haircut. Well, a lot of that is simply to go to overhead. It's to go to property taxes. It's to go to complying with regulations. It's to go to, you know, dealing with all of the red tape, paying off all the right politicians to let let your business stay in business. And so that's why a, a storefront thing, you know, complying with all the regulations, it's, they have to charge a higher price than a person who's like, hey, come by my house, I'll cut your hair for five bucks. And so the existing so-called incumbent businesses, as many economists would call them, they are keeping out the competition by having all these barriers um, over things like starting up a micro business in your home. And then you got to figure out how to pay your taxes if you're cutting people's hair in your home, that sort of thing. And so very often these micro businesses either never get started or they get started and they always have the sort of Damocles hanging over them that someone's going to rat them out to the authorities and they're going to get shut down and possibly even worse. And I look to the example of the late Eric Garner, with whom I'm in total sympathy, by the way. Uh, Eric Garner, um, I'm sure Glenn probably knows who it is. Uh, Christophs, you, you may or may not know. Do you know Eric Garner? Do you know the name? I Sadly, I have to admit that I don't. Okay. Well, there's a big news story over here in the States, um, I think, what, a year ago or a couple years ago, something like that. Um, it, he's, he was a, a guy who was a black guy in Europe, in, uh, in Europe, in New York City, and um, was selling Lucy's, was selling single cigarettes. And he was doing this because he was trying to make some money for his family. And he's just, you know, out on the street and... Um, oh, oh is, that, is that the guy who the, the police killed? Yes, yes, the police yeah, yeah, officer. That, then, 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 I mem- then I remember the incident. I just forgot the name. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. Eric Garner. Yep. Yeah. I mean, it was a big story about two years ago. And, and what was this guy doing, right? He was trying to engage in peaceful voluntary commerce. Uh, he, was, he had figured out a way that he could make a little bit of money. And then, you know, the owners of nearby stores complained to the cops and then, you know, the cops eventually show up. And, and if I recall right, I think Eric Garner had also been involved in breaking up a fight 
before the cops arrived. And then instead of, you know, clapping him on the back and saying, good job, uh, you know, helping with that, they instead, oh, what? You're selling single cigarettes? That's illegal. You haven't paid the right taxes. You don't have the right permits. And, you know, eventually the guy gets choked to death. Um, and what he was trying to do was, in his own way, have a little micro business. So I'm I'm a complete supporter of of small local businesses, micro businesses, that sort of thing. And I think that the best thing to do to actually empower the person of, of humble means is to maximize their ability to creatively figure out little entrepreneurial things they can do. There's so many things you can do that don't take a lot of capital. You know, and so so what you're saying is that these bodegas are sort of supporting this theft of ice cream because they lack the legal means to expand their own business. Right, because for a, yeah, because for a variety of reasons, some of which uh, have to do with you know the big corporations, but a lot of which have to do with the state in various ways. Um, and so you know, I'm someone who's who's sympathetic to things like black markets and all that. I, I think that's peaceful, voluntary commerce. Um, reasserting itself in the face of suppression. Basically, I, I look at that as a situation, again, kind of like taxi cab drivers who, who charge exorbitant rates and provide lousy service, um, trying to do everything they can to get the state to kill Uber, because Uber allows anyone with a driver's license and a working vehicle to offer you a ride at a mutually agreed upon rate. And uh, the taxi cab drivers are used to getting monopoly prices for their services. And so they don't like it. And so I, I would argue you have like structural things that led to this situation in which the state is heavily involved. Oh, oh it's interesting though. No. Uh, and and uh, I would also, and I would also throw in there real quick and then I'll, and then I'm done. I promise. <laughs> uh, I would also add in there a lot of these neighborhoods and, and I'm absolutely, you know, sympathetic to, to the, the argument, which I think is, is pretty, I mean, tough to argue with if you're a rational person, that there's obviously um, serious ethnic disparities in how people are treated by law enforcement and so on. And I would point to things like the war on drugs as a massive part of why certain ethnic groups, certain socioeconomic classes, certain neighborhoods have been just socially destroyed. They've been socially destroyed, you know, multiple generations of people being thrown into prison, oftentimes for totally nonviolent offenses, simple possession and things like that. And so, of course, after multiple generations of something like the war on drugs, you are going to have these neighborhoods that are desperate. They're desperate. So anyway, that I'm done, I promise. Nice. Well, now we have gotten your economical views kind of straight and uh, thank you for this, but it just took us an hour and a half. But I want to ask you some some other important questions for you as, Amer as an Americans uh, that my European listeners probably want to know is that for one and now we're now we're turning to pure politics outside of economy which has been the focus of this episode so far. The question here is that I hear now and then on all the political podcasts that I listen to and everywhere that I look is that you know even like the liberal media is often screaming, oh, no, 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 don't vote third party ever. It is terrible. You are actually voting for Trump in that manner. Now, I stand at a different position because uh, you, you might notice that I'm, um, I'm a man of principles in a way, even in journalistic principles. So I kind of support people voting for their ideology no matter what. I don't know if that makes a difference in, um, in your country, but over here I support everyone who votes whatever they whatever the way they want 
So what's your stance on the two-party system? And should people, even though this is an election between Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton, uh, should we ostracize the people who decide that, you know what, I don't like any of them, uh, I'll vote third party, even though that would mean Donald Trump would get elected? Uh, any one of you can start this time. I'm... I'm sort of tracking so that you both can. Well, um, I, I think that's that's an that's a consequence of just having a two party system where a third count a third party candidate could fracture the vote in key areas that would allow, say, the Republican to win. A good example it would be Ralph Nader in the two thousand election. He did fracture the vote in certain areas and created enough of disparities that, you know, people would say that you know, he, he created some problems and helped Republicans into office. But I, on the other hand, would still say there's limitations to that. So wait, so three are my only choices? Why are there only three? Why are there only two party systems? I think it kind of goes to the point that CJ is making is that because the only real answer you can give to that is, well, that's just the way it is. And I don't accept that. And so that's why I don't vote. Because I think my, my people are always, hey, if you don't vote, don't complain. And my I say... No, 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 man. I, I, I respect your no. choice. Not voting, if you don't have anyone to vote for, is also just as much a political statement that, that's as That's my whole point. Is what if they gave an election and nobody came? What if there was zero turnout? I know it's never going to happen. It's pie in the sky. But wouldn't that mean that we really had to change things? I mean, only 9% of the country voted to uh, to have the the um to have to if to, to make Hillary Clinton and Trump president uh, the presidential nominees that was 9% of the country decided that um everybody else voted third party voted for somebody else or didn't vote so obviously those states are coming from people that have a vested interest in their candidate winning and that's when I start to take umbrage with the whole um political system of someone telling me Oh, you know, if Trump if Trump wins, it's going to be Hitler. And, you know, Hillary Clinton wins. It's going to be, I don't know, whatever the, the other side is saying. But I don't believe either side. I don't believe the president has a whole lot of influence on, on our, our daily lives. Um, they definitely don't have any real influence on the economy. And I would say that is what matters to us more than anything. So who cares, really, if one or the other are president? I thought, aren't we all supposed to be dead from President Bush now? We're all still here. The world's still turning. Um, so I just, I think the whole thing like, oh, if you vote third party, you're throwing your vote away. Is a, Anyone that's telling you that is trying to sell you something. So I don't believe any of it. Uh, CJ? <laughs> well, uh, again, I, I think we're back to a place where we're almost in total agreement Um I mean, I also am a non-voter, haven't voted in quite a long time, don't really plan on it. And um, in, for a variety of reasons, I'm a non-voter. And some of it is exactly what Glenn was saying, that, you know, we have this illusion of options. And um, in practice, really, they're not that much different one to the next. I mean, Well, you have one more party than the Soviet Union. Yeah, right. Right, <laughs> and, and it's I guess and, so. but I mean, but but saying, but yeah, you know, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, CJ. I was saying, like, yeah, but I was just saying, like, um, say, oh, well, you have to vote because that's the way it is. It's like telling me that, like, you know, you have to buy that Justin Bieber CD because it's there. Somebody made that. You have to support it. You know why? Why do I have to do that? Tell me. And then it's in the Soviet Union, officially, ninety nine point nine percent of people voted. 
guess how that changed the country. Yeah, well, we have a system. Yeah. But CG, I'm sorry, Darren. That's, that's all right. Yeah, we we have a system where you know people vote and the parties and the names and the faces change, and then uh, the policies don't usually change very much other than they occasionally get slightly worse over time. Yeah. I mean, there, there's a variety of reasons why we have this two party system. Um, and I, I'm not saying there, there are good reasons. I'm just saying like there are legal and institutional and historical reasons why it evolved the way it did. And yeah, it is, it is ridiculous. This illusion of choice. I, I sometimes describe it to people as it would be like if you were only allowed to pick the only things you're allowed to drink are Coke or Pepsi. And those are literally the only uh, beverages that are available to you. And, um, and you're told, Oh, it's really important. Oh, this difference, you know, between Coke and Pepsi, like, yeah, that carbonated brownish corn syrup crap, uh, is totally different depending on what's on the label. Right. And of course, if anyone says, Hey, I'd like Sprite or God forbid, I'd, I'd like some ice water or something like that, or I'd like a cup of tea. That person is called an extremist and we don't have to talk to you anymore. We can just kind of write you off as a, as a kook and we don't even have to engage anything you're saying. And I think it's uh, it's a horrible system, a horrible situation. And um, one other thing I would add to what's already been said about how, how bad and ridiculous the two-party system is in this country uh, is also, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm opposed to states for, for certain principles that I hold in general, but I also acknowledge that, you know, some states are more functional than others. Um, some are less bad than others. I'm, I'm not pretending they're all equally, you know, uh, terrible. And I have to say, one of the things that I think makes the United States a basket case in a lot of ways is sheer size. It is simply, I believe, um, even within the statist paradigm, it is simply too large of a country to have anything resembling a coherent, competent uh, state. I think um, as, a, as a nice intermediate step towards my anarchist utopia um, would be starting to just simply break the damn thing up into smaller units. Um, I think that is, that is worth considering as a viable intermediate step, because when you have a country of over 300 million people, then of course, in order to seize power, the factions are going to have to congeal together into just two giant alternatives. And of course, in a, in a country of 300 million, it's ultimately going to come down to who's got the most uh, financing and who's got the most media pull and all that, because that's how you then sway the masses, uh, which lesser of two evils to vote for this time. And so I don't think it would solve everything, but I think it would make a lot of problems more manageable and more potentially uh, able to be dealt with simply radical decentralization, because... I, I just think it's it's too large of a country. You, you look at, you know, it's not a guarantee. Being a smaller state is not a guarantee. It'll be less oppressive or, or you know, things will be better. But um, I think in general, the correlation goes more that way. Uh, if you look at most of the really large countries in the world are pretty screwed up. And certainly there are some small, some small states that are hell holes. Don't get me wrong. But in general, like a lot of the kind of nicer places are, are these smaller countries, many of which have fewer people than, than most American states. So I would just throw that in there as well as another thing that a part of also why I think the two, party ex two parties exist is because we're such a ridiculously 
large country. It doesn't even deserve to be called a nation. It's an empire. And um, that I think that in a, in a smaller state, there's more possibility for uh, kind of an outside-the-box, truly anti-establishment candidate to actually get heard. Well, then, you know, your, your views start to sound compatible with Glenn's here. Because, you know, if you presume that, okay, we split up the United States and other big countries into smaller states about the size of, uh, I don't know, mine, Latvia, which is the size of West Virginia and has a population of about 2 million. You know, we split, we split the world in such states and, you know, those states could be run according to the lens model. Hey, what do you say, guys? <laughs> yeah, hopefully. Well, I mean, I don't, uh, you know, ideally, but I don't, I don't know how you would go about getting people to be more collective. I think, yeah, definitely the idea is that, um, you would definitely have to break it up because I have, I've lived in West Virginia. I've lived in California. Those are two different countries. There is nothing that is, you are not in, you are, you are in two different countries. If, if you're in Northern California compared to Southern California, it's like being in a different country. Uh, nor it's all, they're so big and there's so many different cultures and it's so disparate that, uh, Yeah. How do we how do we get any kind of cohesion? Obviously, you know, Sweden or I- Iceland has like four people in it, so of course they can all agree on something. But, but I mean, yeah, how do we? You know what? We we Europeans get really really angry when someone usually says, "Oh yeah, Latvia is like eight people there." No. <laughs> well, Iceland they really <laughs> don't say that, Glenn. There's a, I, I, Iceland has. I have a friend in Iceland. It's about Iceland four has three hundred thousand people. Three hundred thousand. That's people. an entire country is three hundred thousand people. That's like a, that's like a medium sized city in America. Of which of which ninety percent live in Reykjavik. Yeah, <laughs> there's like right. So I mean, so obviously there's a little more a little easier to get, and there's there's also that there's that rational thinking I was talking about. If there are three hundred thousand people in your country you are more likely to feel that your voice matters than if you're in a country of 350 million people and you're just one of the teeming masses. Your vote does count in Iceland for 300,000 people, right? I, a, few, a few thousand people one way or the other could change everything. And in America, I definitely didn't bother voting for the president when I lived in West Virginia. That would definitely be voting. My, if, I, if I voted for Obama in West Virginia, what difference did it make? I think smaller countries might might be nice in that in that respect. Is West Virginia kind of a Republican state or something? And I really don't understand your idea of oh, this state is Republican, this state is Democrat. Uh, it's just so silly. I mean, there tend to be states that do tend to vote more Republican. Yeah, so I guess you could kind of generalize in that respect. Yeah, if if I could if I could throw in a little bit on that too, um, a big part of I mean, obviously, there's demographics at play in general, but what magnifies the tendency of most states to just consistently go overwhelmingly for one party or the other? And there's only there's only a handful of swing states, right? I mean, there's only like four states that actually decide who wins the White House. Um, but a big part of that, like, magnifies that is the way districts are always gerrymandered, and so you can just draw the electoral districts in a way to make sure it always permanently goes for one party. You know, you can creatively draw the shape of a district of an electoral district in a way to make sure that the votes of the people voting for whoever's in power drawing the districts at the moment, uh, always get, you know, 
the majority and that the votes for the opponents are broken up into multiple districts. You know, you draw the borders creatively. Um, and so, yeah, gerrymandering simply magnifies uh, the tendency of, you know, certain states to always go the same way. And uh, yeah, before we kind of finish this, uh, we have been we have been be like essentially wide eyed cynics here. Because we're all wide-eyed idealists with very cynical outlook on life at this point. Well, at least uh, at least the conversation isn't as de- as depressing at the beginning. But yeah, what would be your advice to people right now? What can they take away from this conversation? I'll I'll go last. Uh, I don't know. Let's let's start with CJ this time. What should people take away from this conversation? What can we learn from all of this? And what should people do in your idea? Well, look, I think the most important thing is for everybody as individuals to really start thinking for themselves to think about what do you really believe and why do you believe it and re-examine that and the things that i believe the points of view that i hold now are very different from what i was raised with and are very different from even what my points of view were on most issues 15 years ago and it doesn't mean i'm right but it does mean that I at least, you know, whether you, you agree or disagree with the conclusions I came to, that I at least made an effort to go out and try and figure things out. And I respect anybody who goes out into the world and, you know, tries to learn and read and take in information and look at things from multiple perspectives and figure out what you really believe like yourself, not, not what, what were you raised around? What does the nice looking man with a tie on TV tell you to think, but what do you really believe about things? And so to anybody listening, that would just be kind of me, kind of my, my parting words of wisdom. You know, I, I don't even, I don't even care so much, um, what conclusions someone comes to, I'll respect somebody who comes to different conclusions than me through honest thinking and learning more than I'll respect the person who agrees with me because they, you know, spun a wheel or flipped a coin that had a bunch of opinions on it and it happened to land on one similar to mine. Um, I hate to do this. I have to be a record store geek. I don't know if you listen to the lesser Bonaparte's or not, CJ. If you say no, I won't be offended. Um, but I always seem to manage to uh, throw in uh, obscure American punk rock references into the show that only like a few people get. And uh, if I had to sum up my ideology in one sentence, it would be a quote from a American band Fugazi and their song Blueprint which is the chorus goes, never mind what's been selling, it's what you're buying. And that's about how I can sum up my entire ethos. I didn't get that reference, though. <laughs> that again. I, I, I think I'm allowed not to understand American... American <laughs> it's okay. But yeah, I can understand the philosophy behind this. Now, my, my parting words for our listeners is that I kind of started this conversation, and as you can see... We still we stuck through to our ethos because, as you can see, these two gentlemen, even though they represent two quite different economical ideas, which can turns out to be somewhat compatible through intelligent discussion, they didn't kill each other, they didn't yell at each other, and we still all are friends at the end. So don't be afraid to go out of your way and look at opinions and discuss things with other people because. You might respect them more that way. You might actually learn something about the world. Sitting in the singular thought bubble, and I think you both agree with me here, is the quite possibly the worst thing that can happen to you. This podcast is meant to induce thinking 
and I hope it did, because thinking in itself is a value. And about the wide-eyed, cynical thing, that's also what, what Max Weber said, which Prof. CJ liked to use too, is that to achieve something in the political world, to, to think about things politically, you kind of have to be an idealist with your goal, an ideal world in your mind, but you have to be cynical enough to deal with real-world realities. I wish you all... You, I wish you all would do that. And uh, to, by the way, to Prof. CJ, I highly recommend you read the uh, two authors, which are favorites of mine, because um, I'm, I'm a Christian myself, I'm a Lutheran, but I recommend you read Ammon Hennessy uh, and Leo Tolstoy, if you haven't. I've, I've read a little bit by both of them. I, I haven't read a ton by them, but yeah. I read I read a lot of Leo Tolstoy because you know um, we shared the same birthday, mm. and I'm sort of somewhat partial to, to their ideas. Just just saying, and same goes to Glenn. By the way, I would like to recommend. I would yeah 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 I will, I will I would like to recommend that everybody read David Lee Ross autobiography Crazy from the Heat because it's just a hell of a book, <laughs> or something. <laughs> anyway, thank you for being here and see you next time on the People's Democratic Republic of Podcast. We are making fun of everything and this might induce thinking and we sincerely hope it does. Any last, finally very last words from you? Um, yeah, I'll just throw in a, a quote and this is um, Edward Abbey. Anarchism is not a romantic fable but the hard-headed realization based on 5,000 years of experience that we cannot entrust the management of our lives to kings, priests, politicians, generals, and county commissioners. Amon Hennessy, by the way, the guy which I recommended to you, said that basically if, uh, if you're a guy who doesn't need a cop to, for, to do good things, then you're an anarchist. Yep, yep. Glenn, do you want to sprout out another one of these great things? Uh, yes, I'll quote David Lee Roth from his book, Crazy from the Heat, when he says, uh, money can't buy you happiness, but it can buy you a yacht big enough that you can pull up right alongside of it.
Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Spin your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records.